welcome to episode 80 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges. Um, and today, my guest is the second half of the Dungeon World duo, uh, Sage Latora. Uh, I'll let Sage do his own intro, but hi, Sage, how's it going? Hi, uh, pretty good. Um, that, that's pretty much my intro. I'm the other half of the Dungeon World duo. Um, I... Again, so, so, um, what's the word? <laughs> so uh, humble. Come on now. I mean, I, I, uh, I guess I don't uh, yeah, the other half of the Dungeon World duo um, designed a few other things. Uh, that's that's pretty much me. <laughs> a few other things. All right, so we'll we'll try and dig a little. We'll try and dig a little deeper in future. I, I'm going to uh, get to some Dark Stars Rise. If you listen to episode 79, um, um, two monkeys in a football, um, you'll get a. Uh, a we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Black Stars Rise. Um, and I'll let you fill in your own. Um, interpretation why it's called two muggies in football but anyway um so we're hopefully going to talk to stage a little bit about um black stars rise here or a lot but about black stars rise if we're lucky um but before that let's get to a little know a little bit about sage's pedigree you've probably been through the hoops here um on lots of other podcasts so you can make it brief or long and uh we'll see how we get on so anyway how long have you been a role player oh gosh I have to do math. Oh man, that's the one thing I wasn't prepared for. Uh, let's see. I started role playing in about my oh gosh freshman year of high school, so that would be oh man, that is a long time. Uh, Thirteen years or so. <laughs> Thirteen years ago, such a long time. Yes, that's right. I was doing the same last time. I've done it before, and I realized I'm about thirty years. So. <laughs> so 13 is is uh yeah so you're just you're just new to this whole role-playing thing how have you found it so far <laughs> it's, it's pretty good you know 13 years old i'm still doing it so it's too bad that's right that's actually that's actually a reasonably late start isn't it how'd you get started um through a friend of mine actually um my friend isaac uh oh man the first time we played uh i'd heard a lot about dnd and i wanted to play and we sat down in his room uh, with second ed AD and D, uh, except he didn't have the rule books. All he had was some Dark Sun adventure that had like a flip book to it. Uh, I've never seen it again. But uh, he he didn't have any of the core books. And I just made it up as he went. Uh, so I was like, I want to play a wizard, and he's like, Okay, uh, I think you have six stats, um, and we just kind of made up the rules, and then I right. cast, right. ma- cast magic missile because that's the only spell that he could remember. Right, uh, sure. <laughs> When you're a wizard, every every problem is a target for magic missile. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, we, we magic missiles a few things, and then, uh, oh, that wasn't, yeah, that wasn't too far before the release of uh, third edition. So when third right. edition came out, I bought the books, and I became our regular GM. Right. Um, but Isaac I'm still role-playing with. Uh, he's actually one of the artists on Dungeon World. Nice. So, uh, all these years later, still... Hanging out and gaming together. That's uh, just right, great. Pretty much blame him for me gaming. Uh, <laughs> well, thank him, perhaps. Might be more appropriate in this particular... So you started off with uh, Dark Sun Dungeons & Dragons-esque yeah. um, gaming. And interestingly, for game designers, um, I'm going to go ahead and say that's actually quite a common thread. People that sort of started off with sort of rules and then were forced to degrees to um, sort of come up with their own sort of bits in between, or, or perhaps they weren't even aware that there were, you know, other rules to have. Like, this doesn't make a lot of sense, but let's just see what we can do. That's that's actually pretty common. Um, yeah, so, well, you, you think that's common among a lot of gamers. I mean, the, the line between sure. designer to GM to player is just kind of this continuum of which things you, you see as your role. Sure. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that a lot of gamers are somewhere along that spectrum. And sure. the ones that we call designers just happen to be kind of at the far end. But the, you can probably trace that back to earlier on. I mean, as a GM, oh, gosh, when I was running third edition, I was one of those people who loved how um, kind of clear and uh, uniformly designed D20 was because I could always plug in new things. You know, it was really simple. Like it was – you understand it all the – the interfaces kind of like here are feats, right. you know, how you plug in new feats, here's right. how you roll dice, like, uh, you know, new stats. So I did all kinds of stuff. Oh gosh. I, I'm surprised people were still playing with me because every week I'd have some idea for, mm. uh, like one week I decided I wanted to try out some mass combat rules. So we had a big battle for pretty much no reason. Right. Right. Went up to the session and I was like, well, last session you over here and then teleport. Okay. We're going to do this. Right. Right. Um, 
but yeah, like the the whole. I guess, yeah, you could say the designer goes pretty far back. Um, yeah. yeah, that is actually a pretty good point. I think a lot of designers kind of start with uh, an experience where, well, I guess that's actually how pretty much everybody starts. When you first start the rules, unless you are the person who read the book, most people start by playing with somebody, and the rules seem like this magical thing that's being explained to you. Right. Uh, and you can tinker with them in all these different ways because they're not something that you sat down and read. They're just the way that you're doing things. Yes, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's yeah. As you say, it's you know, um, you know, you're trying to get, you're trying to extract the fun from it. I wonder how many people along the way didn't actually like continue with their role playing because they didn't have that sort of kernel of uh, of curiosity that actually forced them to fill in the blanks and make up those uh, those rules. You know, I don't know. Um, I think that there's a whole spectrum of role playing. Um, mm-hmm. The, I think that if somebody would have given, if I would have felt constrained by the rules to start with, I probably wouldn't have stuck with it. But I, I don't know. I think there are some people for whom, like, the clearness and uh, regularity of the rules, like the idea that you can go to somebody else's table and play by the same rules, is yes. actually kind of a, a big deal. Yes, absolutely. Um, when I was first playing, oh, I learned so much of kind of the culture of role-playing game from uh, the Knights of the Dinner Table to comics. Right, right, yeah, yeah, brilliant, yeah. Shared world kind of thing. And so I was really into this idea that, you know, we, we the rules have to support the ability of people to go between uh, tables and the shared settings and stuff. Um, since I've kind of fallen out of that, I, I like making my own right now. But, um, you know, it's... I think people go through different phases, like the and different people like different things. I I definitely know that. Uh, I actually think that if you gave Sage back in two thousand early two thousands Dungeon World, he would think it was crap. Um, <laughs> you'd be like, no, we got D twenty, we're set. No, um, right, right. Well, that's, and that well. brings up another interesting point. Um, and then we'll sort of take a took a look at take a look at your uh, the phases of your role playing, um, history, subsequently. But I wonder if um, when you're a teenager, and I've, I've raised this before, so I'm interested to hear your your take on it. But when you're a teenager, or at least a youngish teenager, sort of moving into mid-teens, um, having those clearly defined rules is much like you know, like when you're a teenager, you've got all these different things going on, and and having some regularity is important. So often those types of games are particularly appealing to to teenagers. Now that's not to say that you don't that it's part of growing up to not play those games anymore. That's, that's not where I'm going with it. But I wonder whether uh, young Sage would have not liked Dungeon World because he liked having those those rules that he could rely on to do his to do his thing. Well, I mean, I think a lot of that's in perception. Um, I mean, part of what I really engaged with with D20 at first was um, how kind of regular and systematic and predictable the design was. Like there were. There were definite number ranges of things fell in between, and like the uh, it, the kind of stuff that it engaged at the time is, uh, I think, part of why I eventually went into computer programming as a career. Like it, it was right. the things that I was doing with that type of design were uh, kind of problem solving and building new things within a, a certain framework, um, which right. I guess is all design. But the thing that I'm now I think I'm a little more freewheeling, partially because I think some of that really structured stuff goes into my software, and then with RPGs, I like something that you know I can be a little more freeform and a little uh, right. rely on people. I guess that's that's been the big thing in my designs recently, uh, yes. or my thoughts recently, is the the people playing an RPG are really the the biggest resource we have. Like um, yeah, yeah, right. the, rules, sure. the rules are a tool for everybody to use. Um, yeah, and if the rules aren't leveraging the people, like if they're not. Yeah, if there isn't synergy there, uh, yes. it doesn't feel like a good reason to game for me. No, sure. Uh, yep, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So you, you started off with uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and then you uh, had third edition pretty quickly on the heels of that by the soundlings. And and what did you play after that? Oh man, uh, lots of various D twenty things. Unsurprisingly, given that I was really into that, uh, yeah, yeah. especially back when Dungeon Magazine used to do uh, their split issues, where half the issue would be adventures and then half the issue would be a new D twenty mini game. Right. Uh, a lot of those, um, a lot of D twenty Cthulhu, uh, GURPS, um, GURPS Reign of Steel in particular, which is this kind of semi-forgotten great GURPS supplement on a, a kind of Terminator esque future. Right. Um, Oh, let's see what else. Uh, in Nominee, 
followed pretty quickly there. Um, and then kind of a big turning point in my gaming was uh, Burning Wheel, right. which uh, some friends introduced me to, and that kind of threw open some doors to these other, uh, to some new ideas of design that uh, really kind of got claws in my head. Um, but that was kind of a slow boil, and then I think the thing, there, there were a couple of things that happened in kind of close to session that uh, got me really into kind of the indie game scene. Um, First of all, I discovered My Life Master, which was another one of those big, uh, just made a huge difference in how I view games. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then I moved out here to Seattle, uh, where I met uh, John Harper and a bunch of these other, like, I, I had a community of indie gamers now. Right, uh, right. So that made a huge difference, because now there were a lot more people to play with. I mean, my group back home was it was great, and we actually played a huge variety of things. But uh, just kind of meeting these other designer-type people uh, pushed me a little bit harder. And then part of that, uh, I started going to big conventions. Like, I've been to smaller conventions, but I went to Gen Con and found this whole bigger community of nerds. Uh, right, right. Discovered all this stuff that's going on and uh, pretty much haven't stopped discovering it. I'm always finding these new corners of gaming where there's people uh, trying new ideas or, like, this game I've never heard of that apparently has five editions. Uh, there's all <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I hear. So what are you playing now? Uh, right now, um, most recently, Black Stars Rise, because we've been kind of playtesting that. We've been through a few sessions. Um, we've gotten a little bit... So many people have been designing Apocalypse World-based stu stuff for my group that we keep on playing stuff that people make. Uh, so um, there's a, a Apocalypse World diceless hack for uh, Vampire, basically, called Undying. Uh, right. my Paul wrote. Um, so we were playing that. We did. Uh, we've. Uh, that's actually most of what I played recently with that group. Um, right. And then I've done a lot of convention play, where unfortunately I end up running uh, Dungeon World a lot. Like uh, I'm kind of at this point where I'm really happy whenever somebody else can run Dungeon World because yes, I, right, of course, yeah. Uh, I, I love playing it at this point. But I've run it so much. Um, that's right. Yeah. Played some. Uh, oh yeah, I've done a few sessions of. Um, Oh, Vincent Baker's uh, Shattered Lands. I think that's the right name. The the Lands? Uh, yeah. Um, so those are really good. Uh, doing a lot of board gaming also recently. Um, that's oh, what are you into there? Uh, the Dune board game. Oh, my gosh. The Avalon Hill Dune board game. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and then other games that kind of have a relationship to it. Like the, uh, the Game of Thrones game shares some DNA there that's really yeah. good. Um, yeah. Have you oh, ever played the Beanie Gesserits and called the game? I have not played that, but I was in a game at Gen Con where they put they called the game. It was amazing. Yeah. Uh, last night at Gen Con, uh, I was uh, I think the guild, um, right, right, kind of made an ill-fated play for success, and uh, yeah. the Empire I think, right, won. and then the Beanie Gesserits just like oh no, thank you very much. I've never seen it happen. It was so good. Yeah, yeah. So for anybody that doesn't know, if you, the Dune board game from Avalon Hill is uh, is genius. Um, there are a whole bunch of guilds from the from the Dune mythos, and uh, one of them is the Ben Jesuits, who are kind of like behind the scenes string pulling type people. And what you actually do at the start of the game, if you're playing the Ben Jesuits, is you decide what round um, the game is. Do you have to specify who wins as well, yeah. or just who, what Let's round? Specify who and what round. Yeah, who you say so you got to say not only who will win the game, but also what round. And obviously you're playing at the same time, but all your moves are to try and facilitate that. And and when somebody wins, and then the Benny Jesuits are like, "Thank you very much." That's that's a special moment. I don't even mind when that happens. Yeah. For the most part, I'm like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> really playing on hard mode. I mean, if you're if you've yeah. never played the game before and you sit down as the Benny Jesuit and you're like, well. Oh, yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I have no idea how this game works. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm just going to say this and this. Yeah, yeah, I don't think I've ever been in a game where somebody new has played the Benny Jesuits and then and then won. Most people say, oh, you probably want to do something, play something else, but I'm sure it happens. But, um, yeah. but yeah, I think winning with the Benny Jesuits, um, that would probably be, yeah, I think that would be... That, I that hope be... somebody to do that. That would be like a, the crowning achievement. Of yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I could, I've transcended. Exactly. Exactly. So... Um, now we've got to know you a little bit. Let's uh, dig a little uh, more specific. Be a little more specific. What's your favorite book or supplement? Um, and that's something that you don't necessarily play, but something that's that's an enduring joy for you. Something you maybe you go back, you look through, or always think of fondly. Or you know, if you could only take one book on a to a desert island with you, um, what it would be, what book would that be? Oh man, I can think of so many different criteria for it. Like if it's the desert island book. Yeah, you're uh, only allowed to take one book. 
Yeah, if it's the Desert Island one book, I would probably say Burning Wheel Gold because I think uh, I actually haven't read through that one as thoroughly as the previous edition. Sure. But the previous edition was split up into two books, so I can't say that one. Uh, so I'm gonna say Burning Wheel. Gold. I was gonna say yeah, Burning Wheel is like a two. Gold is like a two for right. You get the adventure burner and you get that. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I, I would say Burning Wheel Gold uh, because right. that's been a huge influence on me. But if like if that that one's kind of for utility. I mean, I love the book, but part of the reason I'm making my desert island is because I can play so much just out of that book. Right. Um, if we're talking, just kind of like and remember fondly, um, some of the late third edition supplements still stick in my mind because they just started doing weird stuff. There was um, the Magic of Incarnum. That was this whole uh, like magic item based magic system kind of right right uh which was just bizarre and wonderful and really weird out there and then there was uh the tome of magic which had three different magic systems uh all right three names binding and shadow magic all of which had their own little variations on them right uh, and to this day i mean i don't play that much d20 anymore but just the the stuff that was in those books uh when we were designing dungeon world i'd still flip through those for ideas and just the right. weird stuff you'd find right Okay, so uh, so you're on this desert island, and maybe um, this will change your answer about what book you're going to oh. take. But um, what what four people would you uh, would you choose to role play with? And you can't choose um, like people from your family who who have unfortunately passed away, just so you get a chance to see them again. And you can't choose anybody from your from your own group because then then uh, that may cause a problem for you to listen to the podcast. And you also can't choose um, game designers, so you can't say I'm going to choose Gary Gygax because everybody would choose. Gary Gygax, but just in case, people always do choose Gary Gygax anyway. But uh, so we'll assume that he's available. We'll assume that he's available, but he's not one of your four. Like he's like, God, I'm going to be in somebody else's dream game now. Okay, fine. Where is it? Is it Ireland? Oh, it's nice. Okay, so Gygax and I'm assuming Artisan is right, are out because I'd actually probably I might go with Artisan over Gygax. Okay, I'm sure. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, okay, uh, let's see. I'm gonna go with. Um, uh, so it can't be my current gaming group. Can it be like an older gaming group? Uh, yep, sure. Yep, that's absolutely okay. allowable. Yep. Uh, oh man, uh, I would have to go with uh, my gaming group back in New Mexico. Uh, my friends Isaac, Ben, Dan, and Amy, uh, which does not make for a very interesting answer for everybody else. So let me give you another answer that'll actually make sense to people listening. Uh, oh, sure. Will, um, Vin Diesel. Uh, I'm trying to think of other like great role-playing nerds. Um, you wouldn't choose an actor like Christopher Lee, or you know, like somebody just to bring some uh, some ooh, that's great a good acting idea. chops. Um, oh man, I, I almost thought, started thinking fictional characters. I had a great answer. I was going to say MacGyver because then we could just get off the island. But uh, that's an entirely different question. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, I'm it's like a LARP. Like, if you were going to have a LARP, then sure, you can take MacGyver. <laughs> uh, yeah, actors is actually a great idea. Um, maybe Morgan Freeman, like that voice. Uh, you know, Freeman, you're yeah. be listening to each other a lot, so you might as well get a, somebody with a great voice. Um, and really needs uh, uh let's see. Um, man, who to round out that group with? It's so diverse already. Uh, Patrick Stewart. I think Patrick Stewart. Yeah, I mean that, that'd be... that's another actor, uh, and he seems like a really nice guy. He does, yeah, yeah. From all the little things that you sort of see him, like he's fairly self-effacing, which I think is a major plus for anybody that's in the public eye like that. You know, to, to yeah. I mean, that whole business with the sleeping acting thing is is genius. And then there's the have you seen him do the fourth? The, the number of takes, like what's the what does it take? What's a double take? What's a triple <laughs> take? One. I haven't I seen that. I'll have to look it up. If you check that out, it's 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 pretty funny. Um, favorite Morgan Freeman film? Actually, I'll allow you to choose two because I've got two that I can't possibly separate. But fav favorite Morgan Freeman role, let's say, not necessarily film, but but role. It's tough because I feel like a fair amount of the time he's kind of playing the same guy. I mean, sure, he's he's certain, yeah, yeah. Role, but uh, like the, he he has a type. Um, oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, man, I, I really don't know. I'm trying to... Would you like me to give you one of my two and then you can just say, well, that's what I meant to say. Sure, yeah, that, that's a good way to do it. Okay, well, I'm going to say Shawshank. I thought he, I mean, Shawshank is, is great, but his performance I was thinking that is, is, is genius. 
I, I was thinking of that. I agree. It's a good one, but... Best end to a movie as well, ever. Shawshank Redemption. Okay, yes. The ending is pretty fantastic. Um, I guess the, it feels a little heavy-handed. Like, some of his stuff is a little... It seems like he's enjoying it a little bit more. That one is working. Yeah, uh, yeah sure. Okay, fair enough. I, I mean, no, I agree. It, it's a good choice. I'm not trying to say it wrong. I'm just... <laughs> it's about, okay. Fair, ladies and gentlemen, that's says the tour. Goodbye, Slate. Yeah, I'm just going to tell you why you're wrong the entire time. <laughs> no, uh, I, I was thinking about that, but I guess, I, I guess I'm still on the desert island thing. I'm hoping for the guy to be fun, so I'm trying to think of, like, his... Uh, some of his roles... Recently, he has had a few... Oh, there's the one where... He, I think I know the name, but I don't want to screw it up here. Uh, luckily, Google will save me. Uh, the search brought to you by Google. <laughs> okay, good. It was called Red. I was hoping that that was the right one, because otherwise it's going to Oh, right, yep, yeah, the one with all the oldies and all that. Yeah, and like, he, he just seems like he's having fun the entire movie. Right, uh, right. And yeah. That's kind of the Morgan Freeman that I'm going for. Not to disparage his other roles, but like that one, <laughs> that's the guy I went on the desert island. What about, what about Steven? That one's really heavy. I mean, it is, is it? I love I love Seven. Seven's probably my favorite uh, my favorite thriller sort of type. Maybe like Brad Pitt's really good in it. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow gets killed, which is awesome. Um, yeah. And yeah. Kevin Spacey too. Like one thing I particularly like about Kevin Spacey is in that film is he wanted to not have his name on the credits. Yeah, I mean that's that's integrity. Yeah. I mean, integrity is good. <laughs> okay, let's move on. So, is there anything coming out that you're particularly looking forward to? Uh, Gaming-wise or just, like, anything? Uh, Gaming-wise, but if you want to stray off the uh, well-trodden path, yeah. you're most welcome. Um, okay, by some definition of coming out, I have both my copies of Sagas of the Icelanders and Torchbearer in the mail to me. I'm okay, really sure. Fair enough. Yep. Um, I know a lot of people already have them, so for a lot of people, that's going to, especially, you know, in a few days when... Oh, that's so you know, last week, Sage. That's so last week. I'll actually maybe have my copies by then. And then, yeah. Um, oh, other right. stuff that's coming up. Um, there's a superhero, there's a couple of superhero apocalypse world hacks that I'm interested in. Um, one of them is Jamie Fristrom, who's doing a uh, very Watchmen style, kind of the... Um, the 90s thing of deconstructing superheroes, that kind right. of, uh, um, I forget what he was calling it. I remember what the cover looks like, but um, that, that one's still in development. And there's another one by, um, I'm blanking on his name. It's Kyle something. Kyle Simmons maybe, but uh, it's more of a straight up superhero one. Sure. Um, but I got to look at that one and it, that one's more, uh, you know, the kind of a straight-up superhero. It's not a deconstruction. Um, and both of those are exciting, because for a long time I was messing with superheroes in Apocalypse World, and I couldn't make it work. It didn't gel in my head, so I'm really happy that somebody else right. uh, can make that work. Um, like, every time I try to design something and it doesn't work and somebody else can make it work, that's yes. wonderful, because that's one less thing that I have to worry about. That's right, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. So if you could only be a player or a GM, uh, which would you choose? Somebody says, I'm sorry, Sage, you can no longer be a fill-in-the-blank here. You can only do this for the rest of your role-playing career. No um, no uh, weaseling out of it by um, by choosing a game that doesn't have a GM or something like that. You know, that sort okay. of... That was, of course, going to be my first answer. Oh, yeah. No uh, weaseling out of things. That's what sets us apart from the animals. Apart from the especially the weasels. <laughs> that's um, the Homer Simpson quote. That's not mine. Uh... You know, I think I'd have to go with being a player. Um, recently, I've been feeling pretty lazy. And, right. uh, you know, while I think a lot of games have done a lot to make sure that GMs don't have to do the ridiculous, like, ten times the amount of time that players put in kind of thing, yeah. uh, it still feels like sometimes as a GM, if nothing else during the session, like, they're, right. it seems like a lot of times the conversation flows, like, uh 60% players, 40% GM, but then once you split that up between players, that's each player only talking, you know, 20% right. of the time or whatever. Right. Uh, so, you know, just because I'm feeling a little lazy, I'm going to say players. Right. Fair enough. Now, I'm, I'm, uh, I like the, the preparation. I'm going to sort of segue here to, to Black Star's Rise for, sure. for a couple of minutes or maybe for more than a few minutes. Uh, so Black Star's Rise is a new game that, uh, that Sage is working on. Um, and, uh, 
over the last couple of days, I put together some little cards. I, I got the Black Stars Rise thing, logo thing, and I put it on a card and I laminate them. So I got all those cards ready to go and so forth. Um, but that was sort of that was while I was doing other stuff. Um, but uh, one thing I've really been enjoying uh, doing is putting together Hinnom. Now, I don't know if uh, you've actually got something in particular in mind for that, but like uh, one of my favorite things when I was putting together World of Darkness games way back um, when you were still in diapers, Sage, um, <laughs> was, uh, well, maybe not, but uh, was putting together um, like the, the cities that they lived in. So I, I was like, Hinnom, okay, that's cool. So I, I sort of tried to figure out where in text, because it says text, all it says is text. Now, unless there's another document I've missed, and if there is, please uh, tell me afterwards. Um, uh, so I decided I'm going to put it in um, in Gray County, which is in the panhandle of Texas, because I like the idea of there being sort of snow and so forth. Um, and I've got it on the river, and I've sort of drawn up the old, some old town and some new town, left some blank space in there so the characters and stuff can fill it in. So yesterday I was sort of back into that mode, which is something that I really, really enjoy doing, sort of putting that together. I'm looking up local folklore and finding ways that that may or may not uh, may or may not come in handy. So I'm actually, I'm actually. Uh, very pro i mean my designs don't necessarily reflect that i'm on a very pro lonely fun like i like that i like sort of sitting there and noodling stuff out even if people it takes them you know a year to get to it i like i like uh doing that stuff but um no, no, but anyway like i think that the opportunity for lonely fun is fantastic i think yes. requiring lonely fun is a little yes. yeah that's it absolutely yeah. with your absolutely. time but yeah absolutely okay so tell us about uh, about black stars oh okay so um I'll start with a quick intro to what it is, just to, well, I guess most people may have already heard it. It's a, a kind of horror-ish game. I'm still looking for the right ways to describe it. But it's um, it's in some ways descended from Call of Cthulhu. Um, what actually happened was I was reading Tremulous, which is a Cthulhu-esque uh, apocalypse world hack. Right. Which there's a lot of stuff that's really good, but um, it didn't line up with the ways that I've been playing Call of Cthulhu. Right. Which isn't to say that they're like the right ways, but uh, no, sure. it wasn't quite the tools that I wanted. Right. So I started making a few little posts about, like, uh, for instance, money. There's a, a fair amount of money tracking and like possession tracking yes. to uh, Tremulous, which wasn't really it, it, in our Cthulhu games. It was never about can you buy a gun. Yeah, um, right. Of course. Yeah. So I started toying with that, and that kind of led to things. And eventually, I had enough stuff that I put it together, uh, partially for Gen Con, because uh, my friend Isaac, who we we're actually already talking about. I uh, was getting married, and Gen Con was his bachelor party. So uh, nice. together, since we had played in all these Cthulhu games together, I put together the Black Stars Rise document right. as something that we could right. uh, play there. And then we actually didn't get around to it. But uh, the idea was that you know it was a way to do these classic games that we had with maybe rules that would uh, fit us a little better. Um, right. Sure. And kind of collaborated with Adam on it uh, because at this point it's hard to design without collaborating with Adam. Like we've done it so much right. that it's kind of automatically. Uh, go to him with these. Um, but yeah, the the thing that you're mentioning, Hinnom, uh, Texas. The interesting thing there is um, we've been. I, I got some feedback from some people, and we've been designing around that because uh, we're not sure that your experience sounds fantastic, and that's what I was hoping would happen. But I'm also not sure. Uh, one person read it and immediately was like, "Well, Texas, that's like slasher films, and like you know, it's this." Right tearing stuff apart, uh, where right. for me, uh, I grew up in New Mexico, Texas is right across the border, and like it was kind of what I think of as small town America to some degree. Right. So putting Absolutely. it in Texas was like, uh, you know, for me, this was all those weird little towns once you get past El Paso and you're kind of right, driving right. into West Texas. Um, yeah. So we're in the current version that we actually uh, kind of silently pushed out right after that, I renamed it to uh, Nam Valley without the Texas. Just to oh, is that people, right? Okay, my one still says TX, so so yeah, I'm I'm. What's it called when the, the when the, the the church broke apart? It's the uh, what's it called? I mean, the Reformation when it comes back. What's it called? Uh, the, what's it called? Um, uh, a special word. What's that? A schism. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and so yeah, so so my Hinnom like is um is actually fairly. It's not big, but it's uh it's sort of pro, it's got a university in it. So I'm thinking maybe it's like fifteen. Thousand people because I want the profess to have somewhere to be and and I, I've a lot of the original the design work that I've done around it so far revolves around the when uh, Texas was its own country. Yep. 
and uh, so yeah, so that's sort of that's sort of playing into it. Um, but yeah, I'm just having fun sort of doodling these things. But that's well, that's yeah. something that appeals to me that that whole idea of a vacuum and like put some stuff in and then put some people in and then see you know how that whole sort of thing, sort of thing goes together. The other thing is um, I'm not sure what year you intended it, intended it to be, mm -hmm. but um, I've sort of said it in about 1983. I don't want cell phones and the internet to be super pervasive. I like the idea of having to go to books and look up stuff, but being able to reasonably easily uh, communicate. So in my head, that's where uh, that's where that's where Hinnom, um, Hinnom is at. But now that it's Hinnom well, and Valley, yeah, um, yeah. I, I don't allow that. That's the thing. I don't want to invalidate it. Like that's exactly <laughs> what I don't want to invalidate it, but you're right. wrong and you suck. Well, no, I don't want it. Like this is, uh, it, it's been a back and forth uh, because sure. like the, the whole idea is that these are supposed to be springboards. Like they're, they're supposed to do exactly what they're doing for you, which is sure. give you yeah, like, yeah. a launching sure. point that prompts you to come up with all this great stuff. Right, yeah, uh, sure. So the, I've been having this ongoing discussion with um, Adam and uh, our friend Strauss, who did some early playtesting and has a lot of great ideas right, um, sure. about like the the idea of settings uh, versus setups. Because right now there's kind of an idea of a setting which involves multiple setups that you can use in that setting. Right. And do you really want to do that, or should it be like each setup is just one place? Like we're we're still messing with how to do these things. I'm sure. I'm pretty committed to the idea that there'll be proper place names as part of the the play sets, however those get organized, because right. yep. I, I think that providing you those names and that name, uh, that name actually comes from an album I like. There's a song called uh, "In Alm, Texas." Right. Yeah. 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 I read the lyrics to that, and I wondered, was that the one? And then I did some, also did some uh, more research. And then it's um, there's a biblical place as well, and I'm like, is that which? You know, like the whole all exactly of the, the imagery. All, all the imagery went together, and then I, I confessed to discarding all of it and just sort of thinking about, I really like Arkham, but I don't want to have to feel beholden about remembering all that stuff, so I'm just going to go ahead and make my own sort of Arkham and and uh, and go with it go with it from there. But, uh, yeah, so if I'm being excommunicated from the uh, from the playtest, then... Uh... <laughs> well, no, I mean, that's exactly what we were hoping for. Like, that, that's how it should work. Uh, oh, no, I'm, just, I'm just pulling, I'm just pulling your yeah. leg. Um, but, yeah, so, um, so related to that, um, yes. you were mentioning the time. Like that's something yes. that I haven't figured out how to put into the doc because I, I feel like the range that it I'm kind of aiming for, I, I'm not sure that it's a like. There's nothing in the game that couldn't go back to the 1920s and right. yeah. kind of like some of the typical Cthulhu stuff. Yes, but I, I feel like the practical range is almost the lifespans of the the play, people playing it. Like I tend to set it modern day or maybe 90s because that's kind of yes you know, those are times that i felt like more or less an adult that I, I feel like i understood what's going on in the world right. and it, part of the game i think is setting up a world that seems understandable to the players that fits yes. within yeah. their frame of reference yeah um and then twisting it and while the 1920s are great for all those classic uh cthulhu references and everything yeah. from a modern perspective it you start to run into these like um Almost fact checking, fact checking kind of things. Yeah, that's you right. Know, yeah, yeah. Somebody wants to play uh, a biologist, and they're like, "Well, would I know about this or whatever?" Yeah, right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah I know what you mean for sure. So I'm not sure if uh, we'll eventually put something in the doc about you know it suggested you stay within times there from. I don't know. Yeah, uh, but yeah. The, the 80s are a fantastic time, and that does get you around the cell phone thing, which can be interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that idea of like the 19th. See, um, my game Victoria. Um, is sort of set in the Victorian, as sort of the Victorian period, unsurprisingly. Mm -hmm. But the one, one of the reasons that I liked it was because, again, I got to avoid cell phones. But by now, popular fiction um, has sort of crystallized an idea of yeah. Victorian times. So everybody's got touchstones of what does and doesn't exist. Um, so those conversations don't come up quite as much. Everybody likes to put on putting on campy accents and stuff. But when you get into sort of, it strikes me that when you get to you know, the 1920s and 1930s, people have got a less and less sort of crystallized idea of what that might be like. Whereas somebody thinks the Victorian period, you're talking about, you know, 70 years, right? Give or take, depending on, on, on who you, whose definition of it you go by. But, you know, that's such a long period of time. When you're talking about to distinguish between the 1920s and the 1950s, the 1930s and the 1950s, people don't have that same access or at least don't have those same crystallized notions that you, could, that you can pl play on. The history's not far enough away yet. Well, and it can definitely matter what kind of game you're you're going for. Like, if you're going for um, kind of a, a action movie esque thing, right? Then being able to ground it in uh, like a, a real life in that time period doesn't matter right. so much. Like you don't need to know 
like how how fast would a lever, letter be delivered? And like if I wanted to get a hold of somebody, how would I call on them and stuff? Those things don't really matter too much. Like you're an adventurer, you're going to go off and have adventures or right, right, right. explore ancient ruins, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But um, part of the thing that for me was really important to our Cthulhu games was it felt, it felt grounded in reality. Like these were... Yes. These were people that we could could be, um, yes, and yeah. they were normal people. And then the world was just going to slide out from under them in right, some yes, absolutely, in bigger ways. And for yeah. that to work, I think you need to make the world feel real and accessible to the players. Like it, the more fantasy details you're setting up, the the harder that is to start feeling like you're on solid ground. And right, without solid ground, it can't crumble. So right, absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah. That's the current thing, at least. Who knows? I mean, this is this is a very early playtest. Uh, sure. Some number of years down the line, they may interview me about this again, and I'll be talking about how everything I told you was wrong. Right. But, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's um. Yeah. That that idea is something that's that's always resonated with me. I like like my my one of my favorite books. So I've said I said to Adam last time is Project Twilight. Um, and also the hunters hunted just that idea of regular people sort of struggling against the supernatural is something that I, that I, I don't identify with cause obviously I haven't had to do that myself, but um, like, I like the idea of the characters being the underdogs, not necessarily the de facto heroes, so to speak, you know, like they may be trying to do heroic things, but there's certainly no feeling that, that they're, they're up to the task, at least not when they start out. And I think that that, that progression, that growth that happens for the characters, that's really where, the most interesting role playing happens for yep. for me, and that was why I really liked reading um, Dark Stars. And I, I haven't run it yet. Friday's the first session, but I'm looking forward. Well, to that's it. interesting because um, currently uh, I haven't really figured out how I want advancement to work. Like this has been kind of a back and forth thing. Right, uh, right. And this is great. Uh, you're you're thinking about running it soon, so this will be useful information to have. What it says in the doc currently is. Uh, Basically, the GM can award advances for new moves whenever yep. they think it's appropriate, yes. uh, which yep. is kind of my cop-out answer to not having an answer. Um, yeah, because yes. I mean, it works. Though. It's, it's, it's in context with everything else that, that's in there, and I think that the fact that the stats are stripped down to three um, means – and you, there's a re specific reference to hand-waving stuff and so forth. I think that um, that extra – like there's just enough meat on the bones to, to, to allow for – you know, meaningful um, advancement, right? Like that's, yeah, I don't, yeah. We'll see. Um, I mean, the part of the reason that the, it, it's not more baked in yet is that so many of the moves to the careers as they exist are, um, they, they are, to take them as an advance means uh, a considerable difference in the fiction of yes. you know, what's going on in the game. Yep. Uh, like in theory, the the doctor could take family doctor, which says that you basically know everybody in town's medical history, yep. pretty much, more or less. Yeah. Yep. Um, because you know you're the family doctor. It's a smaller town. Right. You know everybody. Um, right. Which, you know it. If you start off that way, it makes perfect sense. Like just one off here. Uh, there we go. Um, if you start off with that, it makes perfect sense. If you take that as an advancement you need to make sure that that's justified within the fiction of the game. Like if it happens out of nowhere and your character doesn't change what they're doing, if they've always, you know, if you had a, if you were an ER doc and then you take this move, uh, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So that's why advancement isn't built in quite as much now because um, to, I, I really want to keep everything, you know, within the fiction, fictionally justified, all that. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the advances written as they are right, or a lot of the moves as they are right now as advances would mean uh, you just have to be careful with them. It's not impossible. Like if you take, it, it's the same thing the Apocalypse World says, where when you take the advance, like that happens in the fiction, it's descriptive. Um, right. So yeah, I mean, that can mean that you... You changed out of being an ER doctor, and now you have a practice, and people start seeing you, and you really quickly get up to ramped up on this stuff. Yeah. But you, everybody has to be on board with these advances, meaning like big changes, not just you know, I got a little better at something. So right. I'm not sure where that leaves us. Uh, I mean, right now that's why it's kind of hand waved because there isn't a, yeah. uh, you know, I, I think some groups will really stumble with that, um, and I think some groups will be just fine with it. Yeah. I'm not sure if new moves is the way to do advancement. So that's something that uh, is still. You know, uh, I'm. 
it'll be one of those things that I'll probably stumble over for a long time and I'll go and have beers with somebody and we'll get figured out over beers and then it'll be magically solved and I'll right. think it's all solved and then everybody will play it and it won't be and we'll do that a few more times. <laughs> but uh, at the moment, I really don't know how advancement's going to work in the game. Yeah, right. But that's part of the fun though, right? Like that's the just suddenly yeah. waiting for those aha moments or those epiphanies to to things to suddenly fall into place, right? Like it's yeah. it's all, yeah, that, that's well, part of magic. That's pretty much why Black Stars Rise exists because, uh, you know, we were working on a lot of Dungeon World stuff and then this all just kind of clicked together in my head. Mm. It was, uh, I, I'm still a little worried about the perception that some people, you know, we're still working on the Dungeon World War supplement and somebody's going to stick it to me and be like, why are you working on this when you could be working on the War supplement, which we're working on both at the same time. But, uh, you know, it's just one of those things when inspiration... <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's because yeah. I mean, Dungeon World wouldn't have happened. I'm, I'm going to guess that once you get into a designing frame of mind, there may be other things that you're working on, as well. And and I'm going to assume, although maybe not, um, that like myself, you know, you've got a day job and doing the doing designing and stuff like that is something that you do for fun. If it's if it's not fun, um, and you don't need to do it to to pay the bills, then you know, like it, you you'd be well advised to not. So my advice to any penny read listeners who want to hassle Sage is, you know, you're well advised not to hassle designers that don't do it for a, for a job for <laughs> something to come out. Well, it, this is a bit of a special case because the first supplement was a stretch goal for the Kickstarter. So we're committed oh, to okay. In that case, get yeah. your shit together, Sage. God damn it. What are you doing Black Stars Rise for? You should be getting that done. People are waiting. There are people that are waiting by their mailboxes, virtual and electronic, for this thing to arrive. It's, you know, I'm sure there are. <laughs> you're making it so that people won't support other Kickstarter stretch goals. That's what you're doing here. Do you feel is that, is that better? Is that yeah, my, my, the angry, exactly angry every man? Expecting. Is that good? Yeah, that, that was very good. Well, <laughs> that brings up stretch goals, which are their entire interesting thing. Like if I ever do another Kickstarter, oh man, I don't know there's going to be stretch goals because they're just right. such pain. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. While we're talking about Kickstarter, um, I was reading Fred Hicks' uh, thing, and, and for the last little bit um, on um, Penny Red, I've sort of been, I've, I've mentioned this a few times, and and wearing Fred Hicks thing about the uh, the shipping um, is sort of made me maybe think about bringing it up again, but like just the, when you get the Kickstarter going and you've got a physical thing you're going to send out, because it can be such a uh, difference between the time that you set the Kickstarter up and when you actually have to put stamps on envelopes and send the thing out, like, I don't even know if I would ever want to take that on with international shipping because, um, which is not to say that international buyers are not important. Like, most of my sales do occur overseas for my books. But um, the just the, the difference in what it must cost to ship something must... I mean, it must destroy some people. I mean, in fact, I read an article where that exact thing did happen. Like, it's like I'm sending this stuff out, and every time I go to put something in the post, it's actually costing me money. This, the, the, and it, and it must do a terrible thing to a designer's, you know, like desire to to get involved with anything like it again. What are your experiences? Oh, uh, we spent a huge amount on shipping. Uh, it was super expensive. Luckily, we padded all our numbers like crazy, right. um, which is, I think, something that some Kickstarter people are cautious about they, you know, right. they that people are going to be upset if you leave yourself room to make mistakes or to yeah. make profit you know they, they think that it's a profit. hang on a minute profit what <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i know it's yeah i know i know exactly what you mean yeah they, they think it's a, a race to the bottom for yeah. getting the cheapest way to do your product and still yeah. have it be high quality and stuff they'll, they'll make a very high quality product and then try and price it as close to how much they're paying for it as possible, which I, Adam and I just, you know, we assumed you were going to miss some expenses that we had, uh, yep. which actually we didn't really miss much, but we basically costed out everything really carefully yeah. and then applied a multiplier. Um, yeah. I think of 1.5 or two or something like that, just to all yeah. our costs. Cause we yeah, were like, yeah. hey, there's going to be stuff we don't know about. And then we rounded up to like the next five or 10. We always right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I, you bet know, you know, we, I bet you didn't make a whole bunch of money as well, right? It's still... No. Well, <laughs> part of that is... Uh, so this is the biggest lesson that we learned. Right. Uh, our Kickstarter closed in June. Right. In June. Um, we had a few delays, like just about every Kickstarter, but nothing too bad. But we ended up not shipping uh, until um, 
February. Oh, man. I think I know where the story's going. Go ahead. Yeah, which means that uh, shipping, which is our biggest cost, didn't come out of the money uh, for the 2011, because that's the year. No, 2012. We shipped earlier this year. Whatever. The year that we first had this stuff, uh, it, it didn't come out of that year's taxes. So it looked like we made a whole lot more money than we did because we paid uh, we more than the value of my car. Uh, we right. paid over $20,000 in shipping. Right. Um, so, you know, that, that taking that out of the money that we earned would, makes a significant difference in how much tax we pay. So yeah, instead, yeah. we paid taxes on all that money, which meant that we had a tax bill of a huge amount. Uh, because while we are structured as an LLC, uh, according to my accountant at least, apparently my income, like it gets added to my income because it's uh, like I'm the whatever. Anyway, uh, combined with my income, we paid a lot of taxes on it. Right, so, right. And this is after, you know, at first I thought I was going to do it myself and try and figure out how to minimize our our tax burden and then i was like no this this is not happening we're going to another somebody right, who knows right. this. yeah yeah anyway, right. that was the thing don't ship in a different year than you take your money yeah but i mean with that seven months difference did you find that shipping went up because i know that american shipping went up it did. crazily over the last year and a half is your factoring did managed to take that you didn't uh were you did when you factored the cost for shipping changes did you factor it um, before they started putting everything up, or did you, did you sort of see the writing on the wall and go, hang on a minute, we're going to have to? Uh, we were just very cautious. Um, so right. even after the taxes um, and after the uh, shipping increase, we still managed to make a little bit of profit off of Kickstarter and then come away with books to sell. Right, right. Um, so we, we came out all right, but that was mostly because we were very cautious, um, yeah. which, I, you know, I... I still wonder that there's not somebody out there who will be like, well, you charge me more than you should have for these books because you added your costs so you could not lose money. You know, somebody out there is going to take it the wrong way and think that we're lying in our pockets or something. That's, really, that's just, yeah, that's part of life's rich tapestry, I think. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, when you make a Kickstarter, you really just have to assume that everything is going to cost you more than you think. And right, you yeah, yeah. Yeah, I that's mean, great advice. You know, that's, yeah. That's great advice, not least of which is, is uh, maybe lawyer and or accountant money, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, because, yeah, then we had to pay our accountant, and uh, so far we have not needed a lawyer. I mean, we're an LLC, which in Washington was easy enough to incorporate ourselves. Right. Like myself. Um, but one of these days we may need that too. Uh, right. And, you know, we uh, at times I've thought about pursuing having uh, – paying somebody else part-time just to basically run the business side of things. Because Adam and I love designing, but dealing with all this, getting the books to the right people is just a pain in the ass. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess it's that money-time trade-off. Uh, right. There are times where I start thinking that my time is worth more than how much money I make by not paying somebody. So exactly. we'll see if it ever gets yeah. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's often difficult for people to, to get their head around. If you're never on the back end of something, um, then that whole idea of trading off time for money, like, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to work 100 hours, and I'm going to be basically paying myself $3 now, maybe if I could find somebody else to, to do it more efficiently, then I would, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's well, tough. It, it depends on how much you value your time and yeah. how much time it'll be. I mean, we ended up with a far larger Kickstarter than we had anticipated. So we ended up uh, getting a whole bunch of friends to help us pack. Like, if we weren't able to pay them in pizza and beer, uh, yes. That would have been another cost. I mean, right, it's yeah. still a cost, but uh, you know, it's cheaper than hourly wages. Um, right, yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting. Again, that's another common thread. I was talking to Sam Chup, who uh, is one of the the OG White Wolf um, guys, and he was talking about the exact thing. Like when they were sending books out, they get them back from the printers, but then they have to send them out to obviously not quite the Kickstarter scenario, but they had to send them out to you know retailers and so forth. And like he was saying, you know, like they were in super hot, sweaty warehouse, packing books and, and boxes. And he was thinking like, this is designing, you know, this is, yeah. it's, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. It's, but it's uh, funny. I mean, without doing physical books, uh, there's just a, there's still some bit of like legitimacy where people, once you, once you decide that you're done enough to make something in print, people start treating you differently. No. Uh, and I, it's weird. I wonder if that'll fade away in the next few years. But then again, I probably would have said a few years ago that I thought it was going to fade away by now. So, right. 
yeah, I mean, digital is more and more the way to go. I mean, that's probably where we make the majority of Dungeon World's money. Right. Uh, and since we go through drive through and IPR, uh, it basically costs us nothing. Like, it's yes. just magical money that shows up every month, which is basically the best thing ever. Um, <laughs> exactly. exactly. And, go ahead. Oh, sorry. And again, there, we're making a trade-off. Like, if we wanted to run our own retail, like, that would work, but it would mean... Uh, more of our time and having to keep our own secure website, which, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it, yeah. All right, so uh, proceeding with the questions then. Um, what's the perfect number of people to roleplay? Depends on the game. <laughs> uh, I would say that most games tend to fall into either the... Uh, four to six people range, including the GM. Right. Or the, like, huge group, uh, you have a caller playing Moldvay kind of experience. Right. Which is also fantastic. Um, right. But they're, they're definitely different kinds of things. I've yeah. never really gotten into the one-on-one role-playing. Right. It's never quite clicked for me. Uh, and then I think there's a bit of a dead spot between, like, around seven or eight people where you don't have a group big enough that it feels like a big party where you have to have a caller, but it's also not small enough that everybody can be involved. I think that's a real tough spot. Right, right. Uh, what's a caller? Oh, yeah. Uh, so if you haven't played uh, older D&D, a caller, um, if you're playing Moldvay, you've got a caller in a map, hopefully. Um, so the caller is responsible for basically telling the GM what the group is doing. Um, usually, at least in my experience, once you're in combat, you kind of break out of that and everybody starts announcing their things individually. But when you're exploring, the caller kind of takes everybody's input and then relays that to the GM um, with a little bit of editorial capability, depending on the group. I mean, in my groups, usually the caller has a little bit of ability to say, no, that's stupid, you don't do that. Um, right. Though you can't abuse that too much. And then the mapper is sitting there making a map. Uh, and your map is very important because travel with your map, you're... Uh, by the rules, as written, uh, considerably safer when trying to get back to a location. Like, your map is how you know to get places, and that helps you avoid random uh, wandering monsters, which obviously you don't want to fight because you're going to die. That's uh, right, yeah. So, yeah, those are, like, the uh, these wonderful things that don't get used all that much anymore, but a caller and a mapper. Um, right. And that's part of how you have fun with a group. Uh, we did it at Gen Con with, oh, man, we probably got up to... 10 or so people at some points. And some of those people actually had multiple characters because we had hirelings. Nice. Um, I think at our larger session, I was caller and Adam was mapper, uh, which if you've seen Adam and I hang out, uh, was kind of a, a recipe for disaster. Uh, but we had a great time. Like Adam and I will, we have a good back and forth. Uh, and we had a great time doing it. And being the caller is this huge pressure because you're, uh, you know, if I decide the wrong thing and I, kind of override a player on it, that player is going to stick it to me so much. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, I was playing the wizard and... <laughs> Magic missile everything. Sleep. Oh, I went with no, sleep. sleep. I, I got sleep on myself. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how often do you role play and for how long? Uh, usually once a week, though my... Sometimes it varies between groups. Um I have a kind of a regular Wednesday night group, but uh, due to scheduling things, that one sometimes falls through, and then usually I'll find other groups of people. So about once a week. Um, we actually do shorter sessions. I would say we. Uh, it depends on the game. Like some games definitely lend it to lend themselves to longer sessions uh, and kind of like a slow burn. But if we're playing, like we played Monster Hearts, and we did. Um, let's see, that was a few months ago. We did only a handful of sessions and each of them was really short but if we wrote up a summary of everything that happened in those it would have been huge so i would say between two and four hours usually right. um and, but it depends on how jam-packed the game is like with uh especially a lot of apocalypse world based things we, we're really comfortable with those session uh, systems right. so we will just hit the ground running and jam in uh what i would used to think of as like a four hour or five-hour sessions worth of stuff into two hours. Right. Nice. Okay, so uh, what's the best and most inspiring role-playing role film? It doesn't have to be about role-playing, but, you know, you watch something and you well, well, you know, I want to play a game based right there, right now. Huh. That's a good question. Um, 
Man, I, I don't want to give the bad answer, but I kind of want to say it depends on the game. Like, there, there are lots of films that inspire me for different things. Um, right. Like, uh, I guess it's not a film, but Downton Abbey inspires me like crazy to want to run uh, a game that's these very quiet, you know, not a whole lot of what we think of as action, but these little barbs and these, like, mm. your entire, your character's abilities are the difference between, you know, drinking your tea correctly and not. And right, right. Like, that, a lot of times I think the things that inspire me the most often fall outside of kind of direct inspiration. Um, a lot of things inspire me in, like, tone or... Yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, things like that. Um, I guess the most direct... I still uh, really want to, uh, again, this is kind of... Uh, there are films, but what really inspires me is the TV series of Star Trek. Um, right. Which I'm kind of backdooring in because there's movies too, but the movies aren't as good. Uh, except for the recent ones. But yeah, I really want to have a really great Star Trek session. And I've never right. really tried. Um, but every time I watch it, it inspires me because there's just so many built-in like adventuring things. It's right. one of the, the few um, kind of media setups that is just so obviously set up for adventuring like you you have your problem of the week you beam down to the planet or beam over to the other ship or encounter the thing and then you deal with it and by the end of the session you're mostly done and next week you do another thing uh it's right. like dogs in the vineyard in space um right so what about um uh a, a, role, a world to suddenly find yourself in like so we've got downtown abbey yeah. and then there's then there's a statue world but if you were suddenly found yourself transformed into a uh, into a role-playing game um what role-playing game would you choose and, and what sort of character would you play in it um the first thing that comes to mind i don't know what this says about me is paranoia um, right. who the hell would want to be in paranoia but that was the first thing that came to mind like oh that would be one friend computer looking over my shoulder every second and right, i right. Yeah. I want to be a troubleshooter. Um, I don't know what that says about me. That was the first thing that came to mind. Uh, but I think I would be a low-grade troubleshooter, um, and it would basically play out a lot like the game. Uh, things <laughs> would be really darkly comedic. I would not be having a great time, but anybody who was watching me would be laughing their ass off. Right, right. Um, nice. So um, do you have any dice superstitions? Not per se. Uh, recently, I've gotten really into because I had to pick up a whole bunch of funny dice for uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics. So I got the um, dice science or uh, game science um, nice. The uh, oh, what's his name? There, there's a guy behind him, but um, the yeah, yeah. Really carefully cut. You know, they, they color them in themselves. Um, supposedly, perfectly. Uh, the Zoki dice says it. Um, it's not per se a superstition. But I used to be the kind of person who loved the like beautiful pearlescent et cetera ones, and now I find myself really liking awkwardly colored old looking dice. Right, right. I don't know why. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my favorites are casino dice. Like I've got hundreds of casino yeah. dice. I could buy them in bulk from uh, casino dice manufacturers before they stamp them with the numbers and the and the casino's name. So I love I love those. It's amazing how much dice like that don't roll. Right, you go plunk yeah. done. You know, it's, yeah, it's not like hang on, where'd that dice go? Yeah, so <laughs> So who's your favorite villain and why? Oh, man. Uh, favorite villain. We're going to have to go with Lex Luthor. Um, oh. I've always been a big Superman fan, and Lex Luthor, especially when written by like Grant Morrison, is this very human understandable. Like in some ways, uh, and people come up with crazy theories because they look alike, uh, in like All-Star Superman uh, Lex Luthor is kind of the protagonist at points almost. Yeah. Uh, he, but he's definitely still a bad guy, which I like. Uh, he, yes. you know, I don't feel it's ambiguous to call him a villain, uh, but right. he's also very understandable, but also not pitiable. Like, uh, right. yep. the, the hero, when you try to make the villain who gets me to cry for him, I, I roll my eyes a little, but when right. it's, uh, he's understandable, but still utterly evil. Um, right. Right. Which I really like. Yeah, yeah, he's the hero of his own story, right? That's a that's exactly. one of the things that um, that's come up. Um, well, 
when I've asked this question in the past, I've sort of talked about three or four different heroes. You've got the, you, sorry, villains. You've got like the Joker who is, is you can't understand to, you can't really relate to him well. You may be able to understand some of his motivations, but you can't really relate to him. You've got to Hannibal Lecter who you can sort of admire for his for how erudite he is and his good manners and, and so on and so forth, but be completely re, be re, completely repulsed by, you know, what he, he finds except you've got like Lex Luthor who's really, you know, through a different prism would be the hero of the story, just like you were, like you were saying. And then um, you've got the, uh, and then you've got um, uh, uh, Nakatomi Towers, um, uh, Die Hard, what's the chap's oh, name? Yeah. Um, Played by Alan Rickman. I, I can yeah. Hans Gruber. Yes. Yeah. And you've got Hans Gruber who, whose motivations are completely understandable. Who doesn't want to retire on a beach and live on the interest of a large sum of money. It's just your, your methods that you can't necessarily get behind. Right. And those are the, those are the four sort of, um, interesting, uh, interesting villains. Right. And, and Lex Luthor is, is, is one of them, one of my favorites as well. I mean, I'm not a big superhero guy, but I do like the, the villain who's the hero of his own story, who is completely convinced that what they're doing is, is correct and, and viewed from a certain standpoint, you know, that, you know, they are. So, yeah. um, Good call. Okay, so what's your role-playing elevator pitch and your go-to example of play? So somebody says, somebody bumps into you and says, hi, Sage, how's it going? And you say, it's going great. And they say, what are you up to tonight? And you say, I'm going role-playing. And they say, role-playing, what's that? And then you say? Uh, actually, usually I kind of look like a deer in the headlights. I, I, <laughs> I, I work at someplace super nerdy. Uh, I've had a, a co-worker actually find out that I wrote a game and come up to me and be like, Oh, you wrote a game. That's awesome. Like the, it's super nerdy. And I still have a hard time being like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to leave and go role play. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know what it is. Uh, I'm not great about it, but I guess what I had to give an elevator pitch, uh, it's. Man, uh, of all the questions not up being great about, uh, I would say that it's, uh, a fun way to hang out with friends. Like in the same way that uh, like I play indoor soccer with a bunch of guys from work. Like it's not, the activity itself is a lot of fun and it provides a lot of what makes that fun. But if it's partially also about the people you're doing it with, you're not there just like, I'm not a pro gamer. Like there'd be a pro soccer player who's there to like play the game and that's their thing. Right. I'm there to have fun with friends and, the activity is like an important part of that. Like it's not completely negligible, but it's also just a component of it. Like it's not the entirety of it either. I'm and not I sure mean, I understand what it is you're going to go and do, Paige. Uh, sorry, Sage. What well, Paige? I'm sorry, I don't understand what you're going to go and do, Sage. Um, so this is like fantasy football, you're saying, like with some oh kind gosh. of a sports thing, or? Yeah, yeah. It's uh. See, it's, uh, I liked my answer because I completely avoided that question. But yeah, you're right. Somebody would answer. But, but I really want to know. I'm not going to try and force you to make me play with you because then that would be adding a whole extra element to it. But but I'd really like to know what is you're going to do. I'm I'm concerned that uh, maybe there's something it's, in my uh, life that I'm missing out on. I'd like you to illustrate what it is that you do. It's creative problem solving in a lot of ways. That uh, sounds like work, Sage. That doesn't sound like fun at all. Creative problem solving? Yeah, lots of things that are work or fun. <clears throat> so how many? Um, what's your conversion rate like? My <laughs> conversion rate? Oh man. Uh, in, Unless I'm already someplace, like if I'm uh, at like PAX and I'm talking to gamers. Oh, no, no, no. Like, You're talking to doesn't know anything about role playing at all. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, when, I'm, giving, I'm giving you a hard time. Um, I'm giving yeah. you a hard time. I'll let, you, I'll let you off the hook there. Okay. Well, our last question. Actually, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you with a couple of other questions first, then we're going to have our last question. Um, sure. what, uh, what, tell me one interesting uh, convention story. It can be a cringeworthy convention story or a, um, or a this is a super amazing convention story. Oh gosh. Um, oh, I came up with a couple. Okay. Uh, the first one really short. Uh, I think it was the first or second year I did PAX. Must've been the second year. Um, I was organizing like the indie gaming space, uh, Saturday night. Usually how that works is like Friday. I'm all gung ho and happy and I stay really late Saturday. I'm completely exhausted and have to leave early. Uh, and then Sunday I get back to like the full swing of things and now they added Monday, which I don't even keep up with. But anyway, Saturday night, uh, I, at about six, I'm like, I, I am completely wiped. X wipes me like no other convention. I go home, go to bed sometime about 2 AM. I get a call from my friend, John, who's like, are you still at PAX? I'm like, no. He's like, well, I'm, uh, in MC Frontalot's 
hotel room and there's a crazy party going on. You got to get over here. And <laughs> I mean, I, I live in the Seattle area, but I live a good like 30 minutes when I'm traffic from the convention center. Like I'm not going back into Seattle for this. <laughs> so I'm like half awake, just like, no, not happening. Uh, so yeah, I missed out on some crazy after party with MC fun a lot and probably lots of other cool nerd celebrities because I slept. Uh, but you then, had a good night's sleep, and that's important. I had a good night's sleep. That night's sleep was very rewarding. Yes. Um, other convention store, the other one that comes to mind uh, at Gen, this past Gen Con uh, are Moldvay D&D Horror on the Hill game was one of the most memorable games I've ever played. It was fantastic. Uh, we, we never actually found the dungeon, um, the way <laughs> Horror on the Hill works. Like, uh there's this big hill, you go up the hill, you find a dungeon on it, you go down to the dungeon. We never managed to find the dungeon in three sessions of playing. Uh, we just went up on the hill. We had such a big group. The first uh, at, When we first started, we had fewer people, so we go up. We barely survive. We go back to camp. The next session, a bunch of people join us, and we're already, after one session, the like, haggard veterans being like, you're not going to like it up on the hill. I've seen <laughs> uh, Which... Yeah, the entire that game like defined Gen Con for me. Um, right. I guess it's not a great convention story. It's just a great game story. No, that's, that's, no, it's a great story. So, if, last question: If you had one role-playing related wish, what would it be? Huh. Uh, I, I think I guess I'm a peace and love hippie. I wish that people would uh, be very accepting of the way other people play and like just get out there and have fun. Um, there's so much of online discussion around RPGs that just gets turned into you're doing it wrong or you're doing it wrong or I'm doing it right or any of these things. Um, I think we're, we're sitting around pretending to be elves. We're having fun. Like the, yeah, the, there needs to be a whole lot less. Um, I, I wish there was a whole lot less of the ridiculous arguments and a whole lot more of interesting discussions. Ladies and gentlemen, Sage Zatora. That's it for episode 80 of Penny Red. And until next week, keep talking the walk.